You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 15. Today we take a break from the land warfare that we've talked about so far, and instead head to the high seas to start talking about the navies in 1914 that were facing off on oceans all over the world. It is difficult to talk about the navies of the Great War without laying a bit of groundwork into some of the naval innovations leading up to the war. This will then take us into talking about the naval arms race between Britain and Germany. We will then do a quick overview of the navies of the primary five participants in the war at this point, before finishing off with a few quick introductions of important naval personalities that we will be interacting with as the war moves along. I need to preface this episode by saying that before I started this podcast, I seriously contemplated starting a podcast covering maritime events in the 19th century, so I may end up being a bit long-winded here. I have in fact cut down my notes from what I'm pretty sure would have been a two-hour episode just on naval technological advances during the century leading up to the war. I have tried to keep things only to the important points for this episode, but if I randomly decide to do a much longer episode later talking about just how we went from ships to the lime to the dreadnought in a century, well, you've been warned. Navies have played a critical role in warfare for millennia. Since the first ships were built, men have found ways to use them to attack each other. What I think is the classical view of naval warfare is during the Age of Sail, that peaked during the Napoleonic Wars, where you get the British national hero of Horatio Nelson and his great victory at Trafalgar. The ships used during this time were made of wood, and were propelled by a series of sails, which relied upon the wind to drive them. They usually had some number of muzzle-loading smoothbore cannon, up to well over a hundred, arranged on several decks, with enough men to keep them firing as the enemies fired back. The ships would arrange themselves in a line, and commence firing broadsides into their enemies until one side had enough. Often there were boarding actions involved, especially as ships started to have their sails torn up through the course of the battle. It is really important to think about how close these ships were together with engagement distances sometimes measuring just a few feet. It was a really a very brutal stage in naval history, 
with even great victories like Trafalgar requiring great sacrifices on both sides, in both men and ships. This was how battles were fought well into the 19th century, but a very few important changes started happening around 1850. Two of these changes, and the ones we will cover today, were the introduction of naval steam power and the usage of ironclad naval ships. In a battle situation, having wind as your only method of movement can be problematic. I'm sure you can imagine why. So to solve this problem, navies around the world were trying to find ways to provide other methods of movement. In the ancient world, when sailing ships weren't as advanced, this was provided by men with oars. And in the 19th century, navies turned to steam power. Steam power had the potential to replace sail power completely. The usual system was to burn coal to create steam, which would then drive some form of propulsion. At first, this propulsion was in the form of the paddle wheel, and later it would be in the form of the screw propeller. Steam was not without its drawbacks, though. The first steam engines weren't very efficient, and hauling the necessary amount of coal for long voyages was problematic. You see ships around the world trying to get around this by implementing a system of dual propulsion, with both steam engines and some sails as well. These types of dual-mode ships would last for a few decades in what was very clearly a transitional period. The next big change would come in the form of navies putting armor on their ships. Ships have been built of wood since the beginning of time. As time went on, more and more wood was used to provide more and more protection from incoming cannon shells, but there were limits to its utility in this area. Ironclad ships began as really just taking normal ships of the day and putting iron plates on the side to deflect incoming cannon shells. This became more important as explosive shells became more and more common as time went on. Or also around this time, you start seeing usage of heated shot, which was a serious fire concern for wooden ships, become more common. A good example of both the utility of ironclads and just how radically naval warfare was changing was the meeting of the CSS Virginia and the USS Monitor off Hampton Roads, Virginia during the American Civil War. I had the privilege of visiting the Maritime Museum in Hampton Roads earlier this year where the original turret of the Monitor is on display, and I highly recommend it if anybody finds themselves in the area. This battle between the Virginia, with its sloped iron sides, and the Monitor, with its gun turret as the only thing above the waterline, really represented a turning point and how wars would be fought upon the waves moving forward. The Virginia was able to quickly dispatch a few old-school wooden ships without taking any real damage, before being engaged in a day-long battle with the Monitor, where again, no really bad damage was sustained. It is one of those classic moments in history, that we will see again in 1914, where defensive technologies had taken a big jump, without a similar jump in offensive technologies. The naval cannons at the time could just do nothing against these new ironclads. Over the next several decades, navies around the world would iterate on the idea of ironclads, with specialized steam-driven ironclad battleships that were still using the rows of cannons that you would see in the older wooden ships. The next big step came with the introduction of what would be called, retroactively, pre-dreadnought battleships. These involved a few different innovations that really set them apart from their predecessors. These new ships featured almost exclusively steel armor, instead of a mix of wrought iron and steel that had been prominent on previous ships. These ships also featured guns up to 12 inches in diameter. Advancements in metallurgy and casting allowed these guns to be larger and lighter than what had come before. 
These guns were also breech-loading, which greatly increased their fire rate. They were often put into turrets, which allowed them far wider areas of fire. Battleships would often have four 12-inch guns, with two mounted fore and two aft. Not only did the ships carry these large guns, but they also had guns of many smaller calibers, such as 6-inch guns to deal with smaller cruisers and destroyers, and 3-inch guns that were meant to be used against really small craft. The theory at the time was that these battleships, when they met each other, would first engage the enemy at long range, with the large guns, before moving in closer for the kill. As the ships moved closer, the small guns would start to come into their own, with their really fast fire rates and much higher accuracy. After the pre-dreadnoughts came, I will give you one guess, yes, it was the dreadnoughts. These were pioneered by the HMS Dreadnought in 1906. There were several innovations on this ship, but two of the most notable ones is that the dreadnought was the first all-big gunship. This meant that the dreadnought did away with all those secondary, and tertiary, and even quaternary guns, and just mounted more of the big 12-inchers. The dreadnought brought ten of these large guns to bear, quite a jump from the previous four. These ships did have a few really small guns, but they brought along these to just mainly deal with torpedo boats that navies around the world were developing, and they never planned to use these small guns against any large ships. As navies started building dreadnoughts, they had some difficulties deciding the best way to mount all these large guns, with various positionings of turrets to try to maximize the firepower from any angle. Eventually, everybody would settle on a system whereby there were three or four turrets, with all of them along the center line of the ship. One set of turrets would be mounted lower than the other, so that the upper ones could fire over the lower ones, allowing for the widest possible fire arc for all guns aboard the ship. This turret configuration would be used on all battleships built during the two world wars. Another innovation found in the Dreadnought was the use of the steam turbine engine instead of the triple expansion steam engine used in the pre-Dreadnoughts. This offered more power with a smaller physical footprint, which is always important on a ship. The first generation of ships would also use coal, just like their predecessors, but later ships would begin to utilize oil as their fuel. Up to this point, we have spent our time talking about surface ships, but another area of very fast innovation was under the waves. Submarines had first been used in 1775, with a submarine quite appropriately called the Turtle. This was a single-man machine with limited underwater endurance, but it did fit the definition of a submarine. During the American Civil War, there was a submarine operated by the Confederacy called the H.L. Hunley which was the first submarine to actually sink a surface ship. Unfortunately for the Hunley, it sank soon after, but it did sink the surface ship first. Both of these vessels were human-powered, with some sort of human effort needed to operate the propulsion systems. The first mechanically-powered submarine was put into service by the French in 1863. Early submarines weren't really that dangerous. They just didn't have a good way to project force against the enemy but this all changed as torpedoes became more and more advanced. After the turn of the century, some very big changes came into play that were very beneficial for submarines in military service. The first of these was the introduction and adoption of the diesel and electric propulsion systems. These boats had the diesel engine that could be used while the submarine was on the surface, but it also had some batteries that could propel the ship when it was underwater. These batteries weren't the greatest, and in fact, most submarines would spend most of their time on the surface, but they did work. 
Another big change was the inclusion of periscopes on all submarines. Being able to see your enemy while most of the submarine is underwater gives some pretty obvious benefits. When most people think of World War submarines, they think of German U-boats. And while they would be used in World War I, they would not be nearly as pervasive and effective as they were in World War II. When the war started, Germany had only 20 U-boats available for use. While they would go on to sink 5,000 ships during the war, they wouldn't be the massive force that they would be 30 years later. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Before we move into the next topic of this episode, I want you to introduce a concept that comes up several times later on. The concept of a fleet in being. This concept is the thought that if you have a fleet, you can use it at any time and the most important part of your fleet is that it still exists. This fact really drives a lot of the action, or inaction, during the World War. The German fleet would end up being a great example. For the most part, they were very defensive and passive during the war, but even when they weren't attacking, they were able to tie down massive amounts of British resources. If they would have engaged in a large battle and suffered casualties, all of those British resources would have been freed up for other purposes. At this stage in history, if your navy fights a battle and they lose, you just straight up don't have a fleet anymore. Ships took so long to build and were so expensive that losing any of your large and new battleships could be absolutely disastrous. This led to every single participant during the war being very skittish about really committing to any large actions. So just keep that in mind as we start discussing the naval arms race between Britain and Germany. Ah, oh, the British. The Royal Navy, Gibraltar, the Nile, Trafalgar, Lord Horatio Nelson, the greatest maritime tradition of any nation on earth. For centuries, the premier navy in the world, and certainly the largest. With such a tradition, you would expect the Royal Navy to be a real leader in terms of technology and techniques, 
and in fact, in the decades leading up to the First World War, this is probably one of the last times that it was true. In 1889, Britain enacted the Naval Defense Act of 1889, which made them adhere to a two-power standard, where the Royal Navy would be as large as the next two largest navies combined. Obviously, this could end up being a problem if another power really started building up their navy, like, say, the Germans. But anyway, from 1902 to 1910, the Royal Navy undertook a massive expansion of their navy, centered around the new technology introduced with the HMS Dreadnought. And they weren't just driven by the two-power standard. Britain had a serious need for a strong navy. In 1914, the British Empire stretched all the way around the globe, and the goal of the navy was to safeguard these colonies. The Royal Navy also had naval bases all over the world to facilitate the stationing of ships where they were needed. Another crucial role of the Royal Navy was to keep the home island supplied with everything that was needed. This was even more crucial in times of war, when huge quantities of supplies were needed for the war effort. Cargo ships from all over the world would bring war supplies to Britain during the war, part of why the Germans put emphasis on the U-boat program, and it was the Navy's job to make sure these ships got to port. Britain's primary enemy for the war was the German Navy, which was led by Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz, who became the State Secretary of the Imperial Naval Office starting in 1898. He believed strongly that Germany needed to drastically expand their navy, and viewed Britain as the primary threat to Germany at a time when most German leaders looked to France or Russia as their primary enemies. Tirpitz wanted to get Germany to a 2 to 3 ratio with the British fleet, which he believed that if Germany could get to this 2 to 3 ratio, it would be enough to be a serious threat to Britain. He also believed that Britain would take an offensive stance against Germany in the event of war which would allow Germany's focus on U-boats and mines to really be used to the fullest. Tirpitz began the expansion of the German Navy in 1898, which authorized the creation of 19 battleships, which set into motion the naval arms race between Germany and Britain that would take us all the way to the First World War. Britain wanted to maintain their superiority on the seas, bigger than the next two largest navies, but Germany's expansion plans made this a problem. At the beginning, British leaders weren't that concerned. Just another country building a larger navy, whatever. When the information got to the public, however, that British naval dominance could be at risk, there was a public outcry. In 1904, the navy began changing how things were done, with the retirement of a huge number of obsolete vessels to cut costs to allow for more new construction. They also began consolidating the navy closer to the home islands, and not positioning as much strength around the world. All of these changes caused problems for Germany that counted on the dispersion of the British strength to let them maintain at least a local superiority. After the defeat of the Russian Navy, seen as the primary threat to Britain at the time, during the Russo-Japanese War, Britain really began focusing in on Germany as their new enemy. Admiral Fisher, the leader of the Royal Navy, is quoted as saying, Our only probable enemy is Germany. Germany keeps her whole fleet always concentrated within a few hours of England. We must therefore keep a fleet twice as powerful, concentrated within a few hours of Germany. In 1905, with the creation of the Dreadnought, the Royal Navy took a big jump up over the rival Germans, which resulted in Tirpitz asking for funding to make more and bigger battleships in the Dreadnought style. This continued until 1912, when Germany simply could not sustain further naval growth. 
This meant that Britain would still have the larger navy. This naval race in the decade leading up to the war has always been seen as one of the causes of the First World War. This could have been because the leaders of both countries feared the strength of the other, which led to more and more funding being pumped into the navy. But I prefer Christopher Clark's view on the subject in his book The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914. He says that the public outcry in both countries that was used as the catalyst for more naval funding was in fact manufactured by savvy naval leaders who just wanted to justify more and more funding for their branches of the military. Maybe neither side saw each other as a huge threat, but instead just had to convince the governments that the other side was a threat so that they could maybe get a few more dollars every year to spend on ships. So what did all of this expansion result in? Well, in 1914, the British had 18 dreadnoughts and 28 pre-dreadnought battleships. This was accompanied by a very large number of cruisers and destroyers, but not all of these were in the home fleet and were instead spread around the globe. The Grand Fleet, which was in the home waters, had a total of around 35 to 40 battleships and battlecruisers, with of course many smaller craft surrounding them. When the war started, the Grand Fleet was put together and moved to Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands, under the command of Sir John Jellicoe. Winston Churchill would go on to describe Jellicoe as the only man on either side who could lose the war in an afternoon. He was of course referencing the crushing blow that it would have been to the British to lose a substantial amount of the Royal Navy. Obviously Jellicoe was under no pressure during his time as Admiral of the British Fleet. No pressure at all. Facing the Royal Navy in the North Sea was the 14 dreadnoughts and 22 pre-dreadnoughts under the command of Admiral von Ingernall. The fleet would come to be called the High Seas Fleet, and it would actually end up spending much of the war in a very passive state. They would do some raiding against the British coastline early in the war, but Ingernall was under orders from the Kaiser to not risk the fleet unnecessarily. The Germans had spent a bunch of money on the navy, and they didn't want it to disappear against the numerically superior British. One benefit that the Germans had during the war was the ability to quickly move ships from the North Sea facing the British to the Baltic Sea facing the Russians. This was possible using the Kiel Canal, which connected the two seas and was completed in 1895. This ability to quickly move ships would be used a few times during the war, but it was a real advantage of Germany's central location. So far, we have spent a lot of time talking about the British and German navies, so let's quickly cover the navies of France, Russia, and Austria-Hungary. All of these navies were far smaller than the two facing each other in the North Sea, but they still had an effect on the war. The French were the traditional maritime enemy of the British, but in 1914 they had the fourth largest navy in the world. They did not even attempt to keep up with Britain and Germany in numbers or technology. They had a large percentage of pre-dreadnought ships, with only four dreadnoughts compared to 17 pre-dreadnoughts. As their friendship with Britain grew before the war, more and more responsibility for defense of the north coast of France passed over to the Royal Navy. By 1914, France was putting a lot of faith in Britain entering the war, if only to protect their north coast from the German Navy. France chose the Mediterranean as the primary theater of operations during the war, and in fact almost all of their naval actions occurred within the bounds of the Mediterranean Sea. The third member of the Entente was Russia, and before the Russo-Japanese War, they had the third largest navy in the world. The war was a disaster for them, though, 
and by the end of the war they were down to sixth largest. After the war, they instituted a massive rebuilding program that did bring their numbers closer to the rest of the great powers, but they were still far below. The Russians had a unique strategic problem, with the need to have ships in the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the Pacific. These areas didn't have great connections between them, which made shifting ships around the world difficult, especially in the winter, when the northern route from the Baltic to the Pacific was frozen solid. The one area where the Russians would have a definitive advantage would be in the Black Sea against the Ottomans. The final great power in the war was Austria-Hungary, and they had a small navy of three dreadnoughts and six pre-dreadnoughts. They would spend most of the war in port, again with this whole fleet-in-being concept. They did do some quick offensive actions early in their war, but after the entry of Italy into the war, they were pretty much bottled up for the duration of the conflict. When I first started this episode, I planned to talk a bit about some of the influential naval personalities we will meet during the war. However, since we are now a bit over 20 minutes, I think I will hold that until next week, so I think this is a good place to stop. Next week, we will continue our high seas hijinks by starting to look at what all these ships were up to in 1914. It would not be the most eventful year for the navies, but they still played a part during the opening phases of the war. Picadilly, farewell, let us swear. It's a long, long way to Tipperary.